Welcome to the Red Clinic Podcast. I'm Dr. Schwalen, licensed psychologist and expert in the treatment of eating disorders. Today, I have a very special guest, Joseph Lopez, one of our therapists in the Recovered Clinic, uh, joining us today because we're going to talk about his personal story of recovery and then also pick his brain about his expertise as a therapist who treats clients with eating disorders. Hi, Joseph. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm Pleasure really good. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you. Um, so if you don't mind, I know I did a little bit of an introduction, but if you don't mind just introducing yourself, give us a little bit of your background in terms of you as a therapist and, uh, what your favorite type of work to do is, and then, uh, we'll go from there. Okay, great. So my name is Joseph Lopez. I am a licensed master level social worker. I'm getting ready to sit for my clinical social work license. Um, but I graduated from Abilene Christian university with a master's degree in social work. Um, and I was taught um, regarding eating disorders at Shades of Hope in Buffalo Gap by Tenny McCarty. She's written an eating disorder book and a very expert in the field of eating disorders. Um, and that's my passion is working with eating disorders uh, on the whole spectrum. All right. And you say the whole spectrum. We talk about that whole spectrum here all the time on this show. And so it's all different kinds of eating disorders and disordered eating and even those affected just by diet culture in general. Um, but I wanted to start, if you're all right with it, talking about your own personal story. Okay, great. So, uh, yes. So when I was growing up, my earliest memories are I'm the youngest of five kids. And so my, all my older siblings would go to school and me and my mom would sit at home and we'd watch The Young and the Restless. But before The Young and the Restless started, we would actually watch aerobics and we would sit and we would do aerobics and I would mimic the movements that were being shown on TV and with her. And, and at that time, I remember her also being on a different diet uh, every week. Uh, my older brothers were into uh, fitness and bodybuilding. They were very active athletes. They were 10 years older than me. Um, so we had every issue of muscle and fitness uh, magazine or magazines in our home. And so it was very important. Um, you know, my my siblings, my parents, they were always talking about fitness, diet, uh, and look. So it was something that was very ingrained in me from a very young age. It was part of your like family culture. Yeah. I mean, it was it was family values on on appearance and weight and dieting and appearance, like you're saying, and like I just said twice. So, yes. okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, you know, and I also did not eat very much at a very young age. You know, um, I, you know, my dad used to make the joke when we'd go to restaurants and he'd tell the waitress that Joseph's stomach is about that big, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I didn't, I really didn't like to eat. I was always obsessed with the way I looked in the mirror. Um, my parents would eat uh, their meals um, and then they'd give me kind of what was left over, you know, or they'd give me, they bring a little plate and I would eat. I had a brother that, that was a year older than me and I remember he could eat a whole Sonic hamburger when we were like seven or eight and I could eat like a quarter of it and I was completely full. That's about as much as I wanted to eat. Um, but when I was uh, about eight or nine, we went to a garage sale and they had a, uh, a weight bench and I really wanted it and I got an allowance. So I was able to buy this weight bench. So I started lifting weights at a pretty young age, my older brothers had uh, weights and weight benches, um, you know, in our home. So I, I wanted my own, though, and it was very, very important to me. You wanted to be like your brothers. I mean, that's the that's what they were modeling. Your mom and dad probably supported that from what you're saying. 
Um, and you know what you just said though, I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you here and there. I hope you're okay with that. It's okay. But yeah. What you just said is, you know, dad would go, uh, and tell the servers at restaurants that, you know, Joseph's stomach is this big. Mm-hmm. So even though you were a kid who maybe didn't eat as much mm-hmm. by saying that and publicly introducing you to people that way, it was mm-hmm. almost as if now mm-hmm. that's the expectation also. Mm-hmm. So I wonder for you at age six, seven years old, like your little psyche, right? Like having to deal with that of this is just what is expected of me now. So if I ever go away from that description Mm -hmm. of my stomach, right, Mm -hmm. then I may end up disappointing people or shocking people. And Mm -hmm. I got to kind of fit into this little box that's being made for me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever experience any of those thoughts or? Absolutely. So, you know, it was funny because, um, Right before I got into eating disorder recovery, I ran a uh, ultra marathon. An ultra marathon is anything over a marathon level pace. Um, and I was not prepared for it. You know, I was used to running on pavement, and this was at a state park with rocks and sand and dirt. And I remember, I guess at mile 22, I wanted to quit. And this thing was 30 miles. And the thing I remember was that, you know, I don't want to disappoint my dad. It wasn't anybody else, it wasn't anything. It was, you know, I'm going to have to go up to my dad after this race and he's going to ask me about it. And I'm going to have to tell him I quit. And I, I was like, nope, that's not going to happen. And I walked the last eight miles of that race. Anything so that you would not have to tell your dad that you quit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So absolutely. that, I mean, that, that was like a huge, it was a huge motivating factor for maybe why you did what you did mm-hmm. and why you didn't do the things you didn't do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, I've, I've always told people that everything that I've ever done was to impress my parents. Okay. to get their approval um, and, you know, my master's degree, the fitness competitions that I've been in, the triathlons, <laughs> all these things were to try to get my parents to notice me. Just to be good enough, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, when I'm when I'm training new hires in orientation and I'm talking to therapists and parents even when I'm doing parent mm-hmm. sessions, I'll, I will always bring people back to the fact that You know, children, it's like this innate thing inside of all of us as human beings. We just want our parents' approval. It's so important to our psyches and our emotional functioning and and our sense of who we are in this world. And, you know, I, you, most of the parents that I work with can resonate with that because they see it in their own children that, yeah, I mean, pretty much when I give them feedback or I do spend time with them or give them some sense that I approve of them, I can tell them that my child just does better in general. Um, and then I can say to them usually is, I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of adults to this day who are still trying to get their parents approval mm-hmm. because that's how innately motivated by mm-hmm. approval from our parents we are as human beings. Absolutely. A very huge part of our psychological and, and emotional mm-hmm. well-being. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's a big part, um, you know, and it wasn't until... Uh, it, it took a long time to realize that even in recovery with my eating disorder and how much, you know, I thought, how, how, how is this going to affect my mom and dad or how is it going to look to them? You know, and, it, and one day I finally just said, you know what, it's, it's their dream and it's not my dream anymore. And I had to be like, this, what's going to make me happy? Right. Yeah. And set that boundary. Right. You had to figure out who you were mm-hmm. apart from them. Yeah. Like where they end and you begin kind of thing. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. So that's, I mean, those are some huge realizations. Those are. That's what someone, I guess, comes to when they're in recovery. Mm -hmm. So tell us more. What's the rest of your story? Uh, Okay. So, um, you know, junior high comes and I start drinking a little bit. And so, um, 
you know, I'm still trying to navigate junior high, right? You know, my older siblings were, one was the, the smartest kid in his grade and the other one was good at every sport, you know, and here comes little Joseph <laughs> and he's not either one of those things. And so, you know, I, I didn't realize that my siblings put a lot more work into what they did to get where they were at. Um, my brother, um, the athlete, as, as we call him in the family, um, you know, he, I thought it came natural to him and it didn't, he, he, he put in a lot of work and I wasn't willing to put in as much work at that time. I thought I was going to be naturally fit like him and I wasn't that great at sports, but I wanted it so bad. And, and, and the more I wanted it, the more I worked out and the more, um, the more I didn't get played, <laughs> you know, um, because of other reasons, you know, there's reasons of who you are in where I grew up at, you're not going to play these sports if you're not okay. a certain person in the community. Your parents aren't these certain people. So, um, but that love of fitness always kept me going back. I kept going back. You know, I played sports all through junior high and high school. Uh, when I got out of college, most people gained the freshman 15. I gained 15 pounds of muscle okay. my freshman year because I could, you know, I could go to school. Um, I could go home and eat, take a little nap, and then go hit the weight room, and it was free. I got access to the best weight room at college, you know, so um, the way I looked was always very, very important. Um, I still, I would kind of fluctuate between being very muscular and being very thin, you know, kind of restricting muscular and thin, and, and people would ask me, hey, can you tell me what to eat? Can you tell me how to work out? And I got all this, you know, people would notice me. Um, and that was, it, it felt good, you know, but on the inside, I, I hated myself. I really did. I, I, I saw workout and fitness and eating as a punishment, you know, and it was always on my mind. And, you know, what you just shared is so common with the clients that we work with in the recovered clinic, mm -hmm. um, clients who are processing and therapy about, you know, d it didn't matter how good I looked on the outside. Mm -hmm. I still felt really bad on the inside. Yeah. And, you know, you shared, you were able to connect the dots that a lot of what you did was always to try to impress dad, mm -hmm. right? And you never really felt like you were ever good enough. Mm -hmm. You're describing how you lived in the shadow of your two older brothers. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of this core belief that you held mm -hmm. is that no matter what, even if you were getting all this feedback from other people about them wanting to model after you because you were this physically fit person who seemed to have it all together, that still didn't convince you that you were good enough. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't, uh, no matter how much I did, because it, it was never going to be good enough because I didn't love myself. I hated myself. I was at war. So I want you to say that again, but get a little closer to the microphone because okay. that was really important. And I want to make sure that people don't miss that. Which so. Part? The part of why it was never good enough. It was never good enough because I didn't love myself yeah. at all. I didn't. I hated myself with a passion, you know, at my very core. You know, I, I you know, when you're in your eating disorder um, and addiction, you know, you, you, I did a lot of things that I was not proud of. You know, I missed a lot of things because I would rather be working out or I just didn't have the energy. Um, I would go, uh, if I was binging, I'd go get fast food and then I'd go back and say, oh, by the way, you forgot to put these items and they'd be like oh we're sorry we're sorry and they'd give me these free items mm. so i could binge uh even more um and so i was just not proud of the things i was doing you know and you can't love yourself when you're doing things you're not proud of right and it seems like you know the reason i made you repeat it right is because it's so key is ultimately when it comes down to it 
when you're really ready to do the work, mm-hmm. you are, you're, you're in a place where you have to look at the relationship you have mm-hmm. with yourself. Absolutely. Right. Why you're doing things mm-hmm. and, and what are the real motives behind why you're mm-hmm. doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, I remember there was a supervisor that I used to work under when I was in training who had told me, uh, she was helping me just with one of the clients that I was working with. I was going back to her and, you know, just like we do when we're in supervision, uh, sharing about what was happening in session and trying to get some more feedback about like kind of where to go next. And I had told her that the client was sharing with me that all she wanted to do was prove to everyone else that she really could like ace the test. I mean, it was so important to her that she could show her friends and her family Mm -hmm. that she had what it took to ace this test. And my supervisor said, well, you know, I think it's obvious where you go next Mm -hmm. in session because it's, is it really that important that she proves it to herself or do we really want her to get to the point? I'm sorry, proves it to others or Mm -hmm. do we want her to get to the point where she can just, the only person she needs to prove it to is herself. And for me as a young budding therapist, right? Psychologist, that was so huge for me even. It was like, oh yeah, we have to like really get our clients to understand that this isn't about everybody else mm-hmm. and the appearances and what you look like on the outside, but it's truly about finding the motivation to do these things for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a great story with that. I, you know, uh, most people would call it my spiritual experience in recovery. Um, when I ended up going back to my master's program, I had to write my thesis and I needed to take this class. And I was in my first year of uh, eating disorder recovery and come to find out I didn't need this class. But I told my sponsor, I am taking this class. And he goes, well, why do you need to take the class? And I said, well, I got to prove that I'm smarter than these kids. I got to prove that I took more classes, that I held a job and went to an internship. And he goes, okay. He goes, I want you to do me a favor. He goes, I want you to go to three people in recovery and ask them if they would take the class. Tell them exactly what you told me. So I went up to the first uh, guy. His name was Mike. And I said, hey, Mike. And he goes, great, take the class. I think you should totally do it because that's really important. You're going to go to recovery less. You're going to go to meetings less. You're gonna <laughs> and I said, okay, I get what you're saying. <laughs> you know. Um, and so I went up to the next person. And they said, why would you take the class? You know, How much does the class cost? I said, $3,000. They were like, do you have $3,000? And I was like, no, of course not. Um, And they were like, but you're still going to graduate. You can go to meetings more. You can stay in recovery. You can do all these things. And I said, yeah. And they said, don't take the class. Why would you take that? Um, So I went up to the third person, and they said the same thing. You know, So I went to the School of Social Work that day, and I said, I'm taking this class. And at the very last moment, I decided not to take the class. And I said to my professor, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to take the class. He goes, great, finish your thesis, and we'll see you in May for graduation. <laughs> and I walked out because I thought he was going to say, well, you got to take this class. Why are you not taking it? He just, it was no big deal. And when I walked out of that building, and I want to say it was like, it was during the winter in Abilene, Texas. It should have been cold and, and, and dreary and cloudy, but it wasn't. It, the sun was shining and the birds were singing, and it was the first time I realized how much harder I had m- made life on myself. It was the first time I realized that I had been trying to swim upstream against all the fish, that I could make life as easy as I wanted to. But I had made my life really hard for a long time to prove a lot of things to other people. Yeah, that's powerful, (laughs) you know, because we've only known you at Next Steps for a little while now. Mm -hmm. But I think 
everyone that's interacted with you would describe you as he's so chill. So go with the flow. You know, he kind of finds a way to just be flexible and take it as it comes. Mm -hmm. That kind of guy. Right. It was not me. Wow. For a long time. time. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, it is. Cause I, yeah, I was always trying to put that square peg in the round hole. I was trying, trying to make things happen, you know, and I realized, you know, when I put, you know, my faith in a higher power, in God, or whatever you want to call that person, right. um, that, you know, um, things worked out the way they were supposed to. The, the, the more I took the control out of my life, the more things happened the way they were meant to happen. The more you surrendered, right? The yeah, more you relinquished yeah. that control. And yeah, absolutely. That's really, really powerful. But mm-hmm. there are more steps that you took to get there, right? So yeah. you jumped to your master's program, but I think you skipped a few steps in there. So yes. let's tell your story so okay. people can connect those dots. Yeah, so um, so in between college, my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, I just, you know, that, that time was just spent a lot on fitness. And I was going from job to job. You know, I, my bachelor's degree was in sociology, which really can't get you a professional job. <laughs> Don't tell my sister that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nobody told me that. And so, you know, I was, the only comfort and peace that I could find was was in my eating disorder. You know, um, working out and being fit and having that structure because the jobs I was going through, I was just not, I was burning through money. I was living with my parents. I'd go out for a little bit and live on my own, and then I'd come back and live with my parents, and then okay. I'd go out and live on my own. And the only place to go hide out from life is college. So I thought, hey, that's a good place to go to college. People don't care that you're not, you know, um, making anything of yourself. You're just kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're working towards something, but you don't have to be anything right now. And so I thought, hey, I don't want to face life. I don't want to grow up anymore, or uh, I don't want to grow up, so let me go hide out uh, it was a great escape for you. Yeah. I want you to elaborate a little bit because, you know, I know the the listeners out there, they're not just people who are struggling currently with eating disorders, mm-hmm. but it's family members, you sure. know, um, support people affected by someone mm-hmm. who's who has an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So what you said about you found comfort in your eating disorder, mm-hmm. it was... It was like a way for you to just deal by going and working out or going and and restricting, I think Mm -hmm. is what you said, right? Can you say more about that? I mean, because a lot of people, if they don't have an eating disorder, will say the same thing. I get comfort in going to work out. It's a stress relief, right? So. So I guess what I'm getting at is when when is it a true problem? Like why why was it different Mm -hmm. right for you versus Mm -hmm. just the person who's going to work out to blow off some steam. Sure, absolutely. So um, when it became powerless, when I became powerless and unmanageable over it, when it was telling me, working out became like an OCD. Like if I skipped any part of it, I felt bad. I was thinking about it a lot. I, at one point, had three gym memberships. You know, I couldn't afford to pay my rent, but here I am having three gym memberships. You know, you can only be at one gym at one time. But that comfort my life is, is, is out of control, right? So I'm, but I can control what I eat. I can control how I look. I can control what gyms I'm going to. Uh, I can control the amount of sets and reps that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of comfort because my eating disorder has never told me no. It's always been there for me. It, if I have a bad day and I restrict, I feel good. My eating disorder tells me, you know what? You don't deserve to eat. You don't deserve these things. Um, and that felt good. And that sounds very, very sick, but it's that 
to me, it's that 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 compulsion. You know, I I know that what I'm doing is not right, but I don't know how to stop it. Okay. And I don't know that I did want to stop it at that time. Right. But I knew it was not right. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is going to sound really, really judgy. Sure. But this is what we hear from Mm -hmm. families. I mean, they're out there struggling with this and they don't know how to respond. So I'm going to do what we've heard from our families. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you were a kid who grew up in the country. Sounds Mm -hmm. like you had some, Mm -hmm. you had a nice family, Mm -hmm. right? Um, you were in college, so you had the privilege of getting educated. Why was your life so out of control? What were you actually, like, what was actually happening that yeah. you felt like nothing was good, right? Yeah. We hear that all the time, yeah, right? Absolutely. How can, how can they have problems can, or, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. they have such a good life. They're growing up so well. So, yeah. so how do you help people listening understand that? Yeah. So, you know, I tell people, one of the biggest things that I tell my clients and I tell parents is don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. They may look like everything's great and chill and, you know, on the outside, but on the inside, what's really going on? You know, we don't know what that third grade teacher treated their kid like. Uh, We don't know the bullying, especially now with cyberbullying. We don't know, you know, they go to camp, something happens. You know, they, um, you know, I get, um, I'm not getting the positive feedback from my parents that I need, right? And I'm wondering when I see all these kids and their moms like, I love you, you know, you're great, you're proud of you. And then, you know, my mom's like, can you, you didn't do enough, you know, could you have done better? You know, and it's kind of like, you know, I'm at this internal war with myself because people do see. Um, and it goes back to eating disorders are all about secrets and hiding things. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of secrets that people with eating disorders are hiding. And, and people on the outside just do not see that. Right. And, and people with the eating disorders, like you said, it looks mm-hmm. like you have it all together. I mean, people were coming to you asking yeah. you for fitness and health advice, yeah. and they had no clue what kind of turmoil you really had on the yeah. inside. Yeah, it looked like, you know, I had a brand new pickup and, you know, I was working mm-hmm. out. And the thing is, you know, my bank account's negative $35 and, mm-hmm. you know, all these gym memberships are trying to come out. And, you know, I'm, I don't know what to do with my life and what direction do I go in. And everybody, all my classmates are getting married and you know, um, getting married and graduating by the time they're 22 and going off to their master's program. And it's like, I don't even know what I want to do yet. You know, so there's all this pressure. And and I'm and I'm at that point where I'm comparing my insides to everybody's outsides because everybody else looks like they've got their stuff together. Right. And comparison is such a huge part of eating disorders. Right. It really is. Yeah. Let me let me I don't want to look at me. So I'm going to look at you. Right. And I'm going to I don't like me, so I'm going to try to be you. But I only see the outside mm-hmm. of what you what you look like. And then I'm going to use what I see to then turn mm-hmm. against myself, right? Yeah. P- pick apart everything that I'm not mm-hmm. because I'm comparing myself to what I think you are. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. All right, so what else do you want to tell us about your story? So um, so I, I actually stopped drinking, um, and then I lost like 37 pounds in like 30 days. So I'm at that point, I am... I'm in I'm in alcohol recovery, so it's I'm a year in alcohol recovery when when I go to treatment for my eating disorder. Well, let me just pause you right there. Oh. So thirty seven days or thirty seven pounds in thirty days, y'all, is not safe, right? It's very alarming. And mm-hmm. you know, if I'm doing an assessment and someone shares that with me, 
and and one of my dietitians were going to be very very concerned about that mm-hmm. it's not something to be proud of or or give them a high five on or anything like mm-hmm. that for y'all listening that much weight loss that rapid of a weight loss is is very can be very dangerous yeah absolutely and and it was you know i i would get up and i'd get dizzy and you know my parents were like what's going on you you look very different than you did not even a month ago um, and I was just like, whatever, it's fitness. I'm just, you know, being healthy and stuff like that. And, and, but the thing, I was going to say the lucky part, but it wasn't even lucky. It was, I was going back to college at that time. So okay. it was like, the, my parents saw me for a little bit. I remember they bought me some insurers. Okay. I said, drink these. So they were concerned enough to go out and buy you supplement. Yeah. Because they wanted you to gain that weight back that they saw you drop so rapidly. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I want to spend a little bit of time on, even just for a minute, but you said you stopped drinking. So it sounds like it, you stopped with one thing and then the other thing ramped up. So yeah. you stopped drinking and then the eating disorder kind of ramps up. Yeah, we call that cross addiction. Okay, so know. let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, I always say addiction, the roots look the same, but the branches are going to look different. Some people may use eating disorders, some people may use alcohol, some people may use drugs. Okay. Right, so when I didn't have my coping mechanism of alcohol, I did not want that I did not like the thoughts that were going through my head. And okay. so the only way to um, quiet those thoughts was to start restricting again Okay. and start exercising. So you replace one unhealthy coping skill with another set of unhealthy coping skills. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, and that happens a lot. That's why I tell you, what are you going to pick up next? I tell my clients, you may get healthy in your eating disorder, but be very careful of you know, the cigarettes, the tobacco, the drinking, the dating, the dating apps, you know, what, you know, there's a lot of things that I can use to take my mind off of what's really going on. And I think that's why it's so important to get to the roots of the cause of your eating disorder. So the roots are the same, but the branches may take different directions. Yeah. Got it. So Absolutely. cross addiction or mm-hmm. cross, that's what you called it, right? Cross addiction. Yeah. That's what, that's the way it. I was taught. I don't, okay. there may be a different yeah. name for it, but I just want to, I want to reflect it back because, yeah. you know, we're using this, the same language right now. Sure. Okay. What else do you want to tell us about your story? So, um, <coughs> so I'm in recovery and I have a friend that's in, in eating disorder recovery, right? Cause I'm in Abilene and, and they had a uh, 12 step meetings for anorexics and bulimics anonymous at shades of hope in Buffalo Gap. And, you know, my friend was, I had met some people that were in recovery and, and we'd go to meetings and stuff. And they said, have you ever thought about going to treatment? And I said, it's private. I can't afford it. And so she gave me this little box. And a big part of 12-step recovery is, is having a, a power greater than yourself, a higher power of God. And they, in 12 steps, it's very open. You call it whatever you want. So she goes, I made you this little God box, and I want you to put whatever you would pray about or think about into it. So I put different things into it. And uh, I remember I put, you know, if this is meant for eating disorder treatment, then it's, it's meant to be. And if it's not, you know, I'll, uh, it, it'll work out the way it's supposed to. So... I put that in the box. Well, the treatment center calls me <laughs> later on and says, hey, we'd love to give you treatment on a scholarship if you'll oh, be wow. on this episode of Nightline. Oh. Right, so I ended up going to treatment on scholarship and that's where my recovery really, really took off. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's a God was. story. Yeah, it was. Totally, yeah. he found you, right? He yeah. just like, come on, I'm gonna take care of you now. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, you're a you're also a male, yeah. right? Affected by an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So, d- 
Do you know any of the statistics about males affected by eating disorders? You know, I, I try not to. I, I look them okay. up every once in a while, but what I say is eating disorders or eating disorders. Yep. Regardless if they're male, female, you know, transgendered, you know. It's, right. It's, they don't w- discriminate, right? Yeah, they don't. And it's what's important is that are you getting the help that you need for what you're dealing with? Okay. Yeah, but now does that stigma still exist? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I bring it up because it's that stigma, but it's also there's so much of a myth out there that mm-hmm. eating disorders don't really affect mm-hmm. men, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you're, you're a male affected by eating disorder. Mm-hmm. You're in recovery. And I just wanted to really point that out because I yeah. think our listeners out there, too, mm-hmm. sometimes may have a hard time wrapping their head around that. Yeah. Is, is you know it, it doesn't it, eating disorders don't discriminate and I say that on this show all the time and so yeah. I just I really wanted to point that out yeah <laughs> and, that, and there's that stereotype because guys are supposed to drink beer and eat food and what they look like is not very important right uh, and and I'm like well, why is there so many fitness magazines out there yeah you know and guys are not immune to that either to looking at other um, or looking at social media and saying man I wish I had that six pack or right. that dude's very fit. Right. And, you know, what you describe even is it doesn't necessarily even start with with going out to the grocery store and seeing the magazine. It Mm -hmm. could be the message that you're getting in your own home as a very little kid. Absolutely. You know, what you describe is this whole uh, there's a I'm sure there's many themes that you found in your story in the past. Mm -hmm. But one that's really standing out today is the whole theme of comparison. I mean, it started very early on for you and you had your brothers kind of there Mm -hmm. to do the comparison to, and then you went off to college and you're comparing other kids your age Mm -hmm. and all the things they're accomplishing and you being kind of trapped in this idea of, I can't live up to any of this, right? So comparison's that theme that I'm picking up today, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there's other themes you've picked up on too. Yeah, absolutely. It's the comparison. It's like not feeling that I'm ever good enough. Um, it's the lack of confidence, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, yeah, there's a lot of things in there. There's a lot, you know, in, in a, we call them character defects, you know, perfectionism, you know, ego pride, you know, pretty much the seven deadly sins, right? right. <laughs> you know, it's like, can I, um, it, am I, all those things in balance are great. Right. But you know, when you have an eating disorder, there's no balance. Right. It's, it's all or nothing. It's that black exactly. or white Exactly. Black and white. Very concrete. Mm-hmm. So now that you are in recovery, mm-hmm. how do you use those those character, what are they? Uh, character defects. Defects. Right? Yeah. How do you use the character defects? How have you turned those into mm-hmm. something that actually works for you? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I always use perfectionism, right? Um, imbalance is great, right? Because you expect me to be at work at eight o'clock in the morning, right? And you expect me to take a 30 minute lunch or an hour or, you know, I gotta be perfect. I gotta brush my teeth every day and and take a shower. Yeah, I gotta be perfect in those things, right? Now, am I using perfectionism to fill this hole in my heart or am I using it to run away from things? And that's what I I tell the clients, you know, um, we're never gonna be perfect. We're perfectly imperfect, right? And we're never gonna achieve this perfectionistic status but what I'm hearing you say when they talk about perfectionism is there's something else going on that you're really using this to run away from something else, right? Those those core issues, right? Right. So it's like a distraction from what really matters, yeah. right? So if I can just get this one thing right and focus yeah. all my energy here, mm-hmm. then I don't have any energy left to deal with the stuff that's really bothering me, yeah. the stuff below the surface. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with pride. You know, I got to have a little pride, you know, um, to brush my hair or yeah, comb my hair, wash or brush my teeth, you know, take a bath, those things. But when I'm so full of pride that I'm comparing myself, oh, I'm thinner than you, you want to look like me. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm so much better than you because everybody wants to be fit and I've achieved that. And it's like, no. That's or I'm so full of pride. I can't get myself to show weakness. I can't yeah. be vulnerable. I can't yeah. look like I don't have it all together. Exactly. And I was talking to a client about this the other day because I said, it was kind of a trick question. And I said, tell me about what your positive and negative emotions are. She, of course, she goes, anger, uh, sadness. Or, and I said, you know, it's actually a trick question. I said, emotions are neither negative nor positive. They're right. just emotions. Right. I said, but when you label them that way, you're are go- you are going to bottle them up. And you're not going to express them appropriately. And so um, I think it's very important to express those emotions appropriately and they're they're not good or bad they're just emotions and so you're in recovery but you're definitely not perfect at all those things either so for those listening you know about recovery and what they can expect once their loved one gets there Mm -hmm. they're not going to be perfect at recovery right Mm -hmm. so what what's realistic what can someone expect yeah so uh relapse is a big part you know it's even a part of my story my eating disorder you know one day i got my student loan payment (laughs) And, you know, I'm in early recovery. I don't have much money. And I, and, and I remember I went and, and ran like, I think it was like seven miles, right? Um, I came home and I talked to some friends and they said, what's that? What's really going on? And I said, you know, I, I got the student loan payment. I don't want to pay it. Um, you know, how am I going to pay off all these student loans? And they said, how do you eat an elephant? And I said, I, I don't know, with a fork and a knife. And they say, no, you eat it one bite at a time. Uh-huh. And that's the way your recovery has to be, right? One day at a time. And that they were is like, so funny. I'm, I just, <laughs> I have to throw this out there. So uh, when I was in my PhD program, there were, there were times when I was just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I want to drop out. I'd mm-hmm. want to give up. This is so mm-hmm. hard and pointless. Some of it felt to me. And I just, I, ha- I hated some of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I would call my mom and she would say, imagine that you ha- you're you squeezing an elephant mm-hmm. through your hand. And the only way you can squeeze that entire thing, right, is one part at a time. Mm-hmm. So there'd be times when I'd hit a milestone in the program. She's like, there, there's the, you know, there's the body of the mm-hmm. elephant. And now all you have left when it was time to defend dissertation was like, it's the tail. You're on the tail. You've almost got that thing squeezed through your hand. So mm-hmm. you saying that, man, yeah. that just <laughs> took me right back to... That little pep talk I got, too, to yeah. get through grad school. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And relapse doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that you don't deserve recovery. You know, I was taught early in recovery, the people that taught me, Tindy McCarty, you know, that owned Shades of Hope, she was like, she would always say, you can start your day over as many times as it takes. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing I can do is say tomorrow, because that just gives me um, a reason to do whatever I want today. But if I say I went and ran seven miles, but guess what? I am going to eat my snack. I'm going to eat my dinner and I'm not going to work out until I'm allowed to work out per the staff. Um, and I can do that. And, and there was days where I had to start my day over lots of times, right. you know, but the thing was um, I, I started building that relationship with myself. I started loving myself more, more and I did not. The things that I didn't, you know, that I wasn't proud of were like they were just part of my story. You know, and I could give myself grace and I could, you know, um, I didn't have to shame myself over every little thing. And that was a big part that that I had been so used to beating myself up. Right. And I can tell you're there because, I mean, you just I I didn't give you any heads up. I said, hey, you're going to come on the podcast. I want you to share your story. You're like, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) All right. I mean, there's no shame. Yeah. No, not it's amazing. Yeah. And, And, you know, it's my passion today. So I want I know what it feels like to be alone. 
and not know where to turn and to show up to uh, an AA meeting or a 12-step anorexic symbolimics anonymous meeting and you don't know what you're doing there. You're scared. You're like, is this what my life has come to? So, you know, I believe that I was given this gift of recovery and this education and all this experience to help other people. So I, anytime I need to tell my story or people need assistance or help in anything regarding eating disorders, I'm like, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, what you just said is anytime I need to tell my story, like anytime I think people need to hear it, mm -hmm. you're going to share it, which mm -hmm. is amazing that you even see that or know mm -hmm. people need to hear stories, yeah. other people's stories. I mean, that's yeah. what encourages us and keeps us motivated and makes it okay to talk mm -hmm. about these things. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be a stigma forever and people are just going to be so alone with it. Absolutely. And, you know, on social media, a lot of my friends, you know, I see them now and they have kids and, and they have jobs and they graduated from college and do, they're doing all these things. We showed up as a bunch of emotionally stunted kids in eating disorder treatment, you know, and, and over time, you know, there are the success stories. So one thing you said was in treatment, you were told that you can start your day over at any time, mm -hmm. right? You don't, by saying I'll do it tomorrow, it's actually like a disservice to yourself. Right. Yeah. And I love that you just said that and that you've been told that because one thing I think is very important for families and loved ones and those in eating disorder recovery to understand is that recovery, everything you learn in recovery, I think will rip that rug out from underneath you. So mm -hmm. everything you thought you knew, yeah. right. Yeah. Is actually, it needs to be relearned. Absolutely. Because it's so common for people to really think, oh, I messed up today, so it's a big fail. Let me just screw the day off, and hopefully tomorrow will be better. But it doesn't need to be today and tomorrow. That's so black and white thinking. Yeah. It can still be, well, we still have all this time left in today. Mm -hmm. Why don't we try again right now? Yeah, right? absolutely. So yeah. I love that because that is just one example of how really when you're truly, you know, working towards recovery, everything you thought you knew, you just have to relearn. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all a learning experience, you know, walking through life, as we call it, life on life's terms. You know, um, life is going to happen. It's going to throw curveballs. And how am I going to handle this? And the thing is, you know, um, when I got into recovery, you know, you learn all these acronyms. And one of the biggest ones was fear. And it could stand for forget everything and run, which was my MO growing up. <laughs> or I could face everything in recovery. Okay. Or face everything and recover. Right. Um, and that's the thing, you know, when there's things that I don't want to walk through, it's like, you know what, this is not going to hurt me. I have the tools. I have a God. I have a recovery, you know, people in recovery. I have, I get lucky. I work uh, at Next Step. So I have a lot of therapists <laughs> and doctors that I work with that can help me navigate you know I may not know how to navigate this but somebody does and it's just not it's about not keeping that secret say hey I'm struggling with this how do I walk through this oh you'll be fine you'll be fine on the podcast it's cool yeah you, <laughs> yeah you know I told it. you that yeah, right <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely and you're, you're like you're right you're right it's just like telling my story I've done yeah. it lots of times so. yeah it's just having a conversation about something you yeah. know a lot about yeah absolutely but I in my mind I can turn a pebble into Mount St. Everest, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really a pebble at the end of the day, you know, but I need other people to tell me recovery. Recovery is about um, being with other people. You know, I say this, you know, I've 
God made us to to help each other, mm-hmm. to be of service to each other. And I've the only way I've ever known God work is through people. You know, I've never seen a burning bush or a booming voice in the sky, but I have gone up to other people with lots of time to recover and said, hey, how do I get through this? Mm-hmm. And they usually say, did you pray about it? And I'm like, no, and they're like, start there. Um, and that's one of the tools of recovery, right? Whatever prayer looks like to you, you know? Um, and then it's like, hey, do it this way or do this. Or, you know, a lot of times, you know, recovery to me is it's not what I should do, but it's like what I don't need to do, mm-hmm. right? That's where I need to start, right? I've got something big ahead of me. What I know not to do is restrict, to take control, to go exercise. It's to to, to not start there, right? And I've got a chance when when I look at those things, right? So that brings my next question to you mm-hmm. because there's a lot of families out there that, because mm-hmm. we, you know, we're talking about don't expect perfection in recovery yeah. either. Yeah. So you got something big in front of you and the urges may be to restrict and take mm-hmm. control and, and fall back on those, yeah. those comfortable things, right? Yeah. So I guess I have two questions. What, what really helped you the most in the beginning when you were trying to overcome those go-to urges and choose a different path, right? So one of the big things, and it's part of my recovery story. So when I was going to 12-step meetings, I met a girl named Ashley. And me and Ashley were very unhealthy friends. We would restrict together. We'd go exercise together. Uh, and when we got to treatment, I saw how much she struggled. And that was the first time I realized how much my addiction could affect and hurt other people. Um, I made amends to Ashley that day, and I said I was never going to enable anybody in their eating disorder ever again, ever. Um, And so my big part of my recovery was seeing that for the first time with clear eyes um, and how much my eating disorder had effect on me and had effect on other people. So a big part of my recovery was really looking at myself because I was always looking at other people. What do they look like? Compare myself to do all these things, and it's like, What's going on inside of me? So a big part of my recovery was taking responsibility for my actions. Yeah, I can go get three gym memberships, but I don't want to ask my parents for money anymore. Um, When you're completely sober from all the things, you're feeling a lot of things for the first time, and it's okay. You can walk through those things and to know that it's going to be okay and that I'm not going to do it perfectly. So you're telling people that they have to feel their feelings. Yeah, absolutely. That's wow, scary, uh, right? I think we could just like drop the mic right there. Yeah, boom. Right? Yeah. That's intense. I mean, that's yeah. where all the work happens, right? Yeah. So now you're faced with all these feelings and you have to figure out a way to cope mm-hmm. in a way that's not going to hurt you or others. Yeah. Very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I had to learn, that feelings, you know, feelings are not facts. You know, just because I'm feeling something doesn't mean it's true. You know, my go-to feeling may be anger. Mm-hmm. If I get anger or angry at somebody, to me, fear is always the grandparent of all other feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm angry or something, it's because I'm afraid that I'm going to look vulnerable, that I'm not going to have it all together, or people are going to see me differently. At the end of the day, who cares? Right. It's, it, you know, it's okay to be afraid. Um, it goes back to that balance. I need to have a little fear or I would try to pick up a snake or something, you know, right? right? I need to have a fear of an eating disorder because it will hurt me. Right. I need to have a fear of missing a therapy appointment, right? Because that could have some consequences of mm-hmm. I can't talk about what I'm dealing with. 
you know. Um, but if I'm afraid of to the extreme of gaining weight or I hate this part of my body or what are people going to think of me, you know, that fear has gotten way out of balance. Okay. So fear, just like perfectionism, just like everything else that people may struggle with can also be something that can help us. Yeah, and that's what, you know, treatment helps us, yeah. all people really get to that point of mm-hmm. understanding how to channel those things mm-hmm. in a useful way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, to me, even to this day, I have a healthy fear of my eating disorder because mm-hmm. it will hurt me. I have a healthy fear of going back to it, you know, but I know that I have the tools and Today, I want to fight harder than my eating disorder today, Right. one day at a time. Right, one day yeah. at a time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my next question, and probably my last question before we kind of move into the next sure. the next phase of this, um, for families out there listening, you know, when, when, does it, when does a person get to the point where it's no longer their go-to. Like they've gotten further and further away from those eating disorder behaviors or the patterns, and they're more likely to choose a healthy coping skill Mm -hmm. than revert back to an unhealthy coping skill. You know, when I got far enough away from my eating disorder, I could see the pros and cons, right? I could see that, you know what? Living on my own is not a bad thing. Having my own money actually is pretty dang good. Um, not being codependent, um, actually looking at red flags when making friends and, and, and forming new relationships. When my recovery got to the point where I was coping with things healthily, I, I don't think I could even restrict even if I tried today because I'm not struggling with anything. There's nothing I'm running away from. Okay. You know? So, so does that mean you like food too? I do like food. All right. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are wondering about that. Yeah, you know, will absolutely. my kid ever get to the point where they want to enjoy a meal or they yeah. actually look forward to their next meal? Yeah. Right. And today, you know, uh, food is fuel. It's not therapy. Food right. was therapy for many, many years. And today, you know, I always say you don't go to the different gas stations and think, oh, I want shell today because that'll make my car really happy. Or, you know, you don't go to the Murphy's at the Walmart and, you know, no, you just put in gas, right? It's fuel, right? It has its place. Um, The same thing with food. Mm -hmm. Food is, it's fuel today. Yeah. It it has its purpose and it's not the thing that I need to walk through life. Right. It's functional. It's not necessarily an emotional outlet or a way to have control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there okay. anything else about your story that we didn't get to talk about yet that you really want to make sure you tell our audience? No, I don't think so. I'll probably think of it on the way home. Okay. But <laughs> I'd be like, oh, Darn I could have done yeah. that one. 